Welcome to the LTID Network Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and on this podcast, we seek out the world's best researchers, coaches, support staff, teachers, and athletes to better understand the process of long-term athlete development. Don't forget to get your seven-day free trial to our online platform and 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50. That's LTADVIP50 at the LTID Network Hub website. This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures, or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Just a quick note to let you know about some of the fantastic events that are coming from the LTAD network in the next few months. First up, on the 28th of April from 6 till 9pm at St. Peter's High School in Gloucester, we'll be hosting our very next regional hub, followed very shortly on the 14th of June as we travel up to Bolton Tennis Arena for the next hub in the series. Then on the 9th and 10th of July, we'll be heading to Hartbury University for the LTID Network UK Conference. So don't delay, get these dates in your diary and register as early as possible to avoid disappointment. And I hope to see you there. Welcome to the LTID Network podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Sean Cumming. This is actually Sean's second appearance on the show after he gave us an idiot's guide to growth, maturation and biobanding back in series one, episode 11 which I would highly recommend you go back and listen to if you haven't already. Sean is a senior lecturer in sport and exercise sciences at the University of Bath, as well as a consultant for the Premier League, Football Association, Lawn Tennis Association and Bath Rugby. Sean, welcome back. It's great to have you back on after a a few years. Obviously, we've been communicating outside of the podcast, but it's great to get you back on for a bit of an update. Yeah, it's always good to chat, Rob. Thanks for having me. So we last spoke back in series one, which is December of 2019. So we're now mm-hmm. in 2022. And I know uh, from seeing a number of PhD students and a number of publications that you've been busy in that period uh, in, in projects that obviously maybe are just coming to publication or even projects that are finished, but yeah. haven't been published yet. So really keen to touch base and see how you think things have unfolded in the years and what sort of notable projects have, have popped up and, and been completed. So what sort of things have you uh, been working on since that we last spoke? Yeah, so it's, it's been been fun. I've been very lucky. I've had some excellent PhD students to work with and uh, also some excellent clubs and organisations. And what's been fun about the uh, research is that the clubs and the organisations have been largely addressing the research questions and driving the research questions. You know, as a scientist, I really wouldn't know what are the big challenges in sport as it relates to developing young athletes and growth and maturity. Uh, but the clubs do, and they know the challenges they have at hand. And so that's largely driven the direction we've taken the project in. Obviously, through the Premier League, we did all of the education around growth and maturity, and likewise with the, with the coaches through the FA. So the clubs and the organisations are pretty switched on to the subject matter now. And with the things such as the PMA and the systems for measuring and monitoring growth and maturity, they're more aware of these differences and they're starting to see where the potential implications are, whether it be in terms of preventing injuries as kids go through the growth spurt 
or how do we more effectively evaluate uh, players uh, in competitions uh, to account for individual differences in growth and maturation as uh, you know we're making those kind of selection decisions because you know those biases in terms of selecting the early developers are still there and key to addressing that is is kind of looking at that coach evaluation of the performance so you know the type of work that Megan Hill's been doing uh, down in Southampton uh, has been excellent in terms of giving us some really nice insights as to how maturity influences the coach evaluations of performance in games, but also how the growth spurt in itself uh, may actually lead to sudden decrements in performance and the need to take that into account when you're making those types of decisions. And of course, the great thing is the research gets done in the clubs and then translated into practice. So it's a fantastic opportunity to, to, to create impact with, with the work that we've been doing. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, and I saw, uh, I mean, it was a while back now, but you shared a great study kind of coming out of some of the Bundesliga clubs around some of the uh, the kind of, I guess, un more uh, in-depth understanding of their players and, and how that's mm -hmm. progressed and, and how that relates to relative age effect and uh, maturation. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, well, we actually haven't even submitted that one yet. We need to get on that. Uh, so, yeah, this was a data we collected from uh, one of the Bundesliga clubs, but also with uh, three of the uh, Premier League Academy clubs as well, where we were looking at the differences between relative age and biological maturity, because there's still a lot of confusion, uh, not so much in the clubs, but actually more in terms of the academics and the researchers around these two constructs being very, very different. And we wanted to show that they were different. And so we went into the academies across the different age groups and looked at relative age and we looked at biological maturity and yeah the correlation between the two if you look at absolute maturity and relative age within age groups you're looking at a correlation of about 0.28 so that means only about eight percent of the relative age effect can be explained by individual differences in biological maturity and when we actually looked at relative maturity which is your relative maturity for your age against uh, relative age actually there was a negative correlation and it showed us that actually those quarter four players are actually much more likely to be early developers uh, than the quarter ones. And that's probably due to the fact that in order to make up for that uh, disadvantage of being a year younger, uh, well, it probably benefits you to have advantages in other areas, whether it be technical, psychological, tactical, or whether it be physical. And uh, yeah, it's something we still continue to, to battle with. We, we still see a lot of papers out there suggesting that relative age is all down to maturity. And the challenge I think we have is that it's easy to get access to a big data set with lots of birthdays on it. And so it's easy to do a relative age paper, but a lot of the folk who are doing that work don't have a background or training in oxology or the subject of growth and maturity. And so they just assume that older means more mature. Now that might apply if we're looking at the difference between an eight-year-old and, and a two-year-old or an 18-year-old and a seven-year-old, yes, there's going to be a strong association between age and maturity. But as soon as you go into the single-year bands, well, actually, the whole association largely drops out, and particularly in selective sports, such as football or rugby, where we really don't see that association. But the problem is, is you get those papers that come out and they say, Oh, relative age, it's all to do with maturity. These older boys are faster, stronger, more powerful. Well, there's four or five papers just come out recently showing that actually no association with relative age and fitness, but clear associations between maturity and fitness. So it, it's an easy way to explain a phenomenon in terms of just saying, oh yeah, relatively older, more mature, bigger, faster, stronger. But the reality of the situation is there's not a lot of evidence to support that at all. And the danger is that that information then goes out to the clubs and people are confused in terms of, well, are these things the same? And that's that's still a challenge that we're, we're battling with a little bit, I think. Uh, often we get papers talking about biobanding as being, say, a solution for the relative age effect. It's got nothing to do with the relative age effect. And sometimes I write to these academics and I say, look, you know, nice paper, really good suggestions in there, but please don't mention biobanding as a solution for the relative age effects got nothing to do with it you're just confusing uh the, the matters there and sometimes they responded to me and they've said look yeah that's that that's fine uh yeah we understand what you're talking about but we believe that as as people have started talking about biobanding uh in relation to relative age it's entered the zeitgeist it's the term that they use then it's perfectly fine to go ahead and do that and I'm just sitting there going, well, if you understand there are differences, why would you continue to perpetuate these kind of myths? So it does, does wind me up a wee bit, but it's certainly something that's still a challenge for us, I think. Yeah, I think uh, it is, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because people kind of dip their toe into something. And, and again, it's like anything, bit of a Kruger effect. Oh yeah, yeah. I get that. so you know, he's a quartile one, he's obviously older because he's born in January and he's a quartile four. So 
you know, ergo, he's old, he's older, therefore he must be physically more mature. And that's just simply not the case. Yes. And as you suggested, and I think we've probably seen this the more we hang around academies, is, is those guys who are quartile fours are there because they are probably outliers. Yes. If you're a quartile one, maybe mm-hmm. you're maybe more of an average player because you're, you're maybe maturing at a similar rate to most of the other people. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, I mean, I've certainly seen that. I remember working within... Scotland under 16s, and we had two players come into the squad who were a year below. So rather mm-hmm. than under 16s, they're effectively under 15s. Mm-hmm. They were early maturers. Yeah. So, you know, we're saying oh, these, these two players are outstanding. We're going to take them on a year younger, and they're going to have two players under 16s. Well, what was it about them? It was that physically they were more advanced. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily technically they were brilliant or whatever. It was, mm-hmm. hey, he's, he's a front rower who's really strong and robust. He's, you know, a back three player who's really quick. Well, what are the things that influence that, as we've discussed, maturing? Yeah. Now, remember that data set as well that we had from the Scottish Developmental Programme. There was no relative age effect at all, none whatsoever. But when it came to the maturity bias, yeah, it was very strong and very present there. And again, just showing you that these are not two, one and the same. And getting that message across, I think, is important. And as you said, it's easy to, you know, just pick up a data set with a bunch of dates on it and, and do a study. And that's the, and if you look at, there's been an absolute tidal wave of relative age research out there. You know, it's really swamped the market. I know some journals are kind of pushing it back now because there's just so much of it out there. And it's easy to do, as I said, but, you know, as I said, most people don't have a background in axology. And so they're kind of, to some extent, making it tough as they go along, which is a challenge that we do face. You know, I speak to folks like Adam Baxter-Jones, Joe Eisenman, Bob Molina, who, you know, that's their, their bread and butter is growth and maturation. And they just can't understand how people would confuse the two. Yeah, it is an interesting one. And I guess it would make sense if we only saw relative age effect and that that was a predictive maturation. We only saw that in physical domains, like we mm-hmm. saw rugby or we saw it in football, but we don't. We see that in academics and we see that yeah. in other areas in which there isn't potentially a physical element so it, it does suggest actually we may be barking up the wrong tree if we think relative age effect purely explains physical differences yeah the maturity may be a part of it but it's probably a very very small part of it and uh you certainly can't equate the two as being the same and you know i think part of the challenge as well is if, if you've established a, a kind of career or a you know a, a theory based upon these two things being the same then all of a sudden somebody shows you some data and shows that it actually isn't the case, then, well, that means a lot of the stuff you did previously is kind of moot. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, maybe uh, not as strong as you perhaps thought it was. And if you identify yourself too closely with the research, then that's going to be negative. Uh, but, you know, as a, as a scientist, as a researcher, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make errors and you have to own them and recognize them, fix them and move on and learn and adapt from that. And if there's not a willingness to adapt or learn, even when the data is there black and white in front of you, then that's, that's not a good thing. Mm. So what are some of the other projects that you've, uh, you've had your hand since we last spoke? Yeah, so as I said, uh, Megan's work at Southampton was really useful. It showed us that there was a clear maturity selection bias towards the uh, more mature players when we looked at match grades. And that was evident around the under 13s, under 14s. And that was exactly when the maturity selection biases started kicking off at Southampton as well. But what really was quite interesting at Southampton is we found this really strange result in the, I think it was the under 12s. So this was 11 year olds. And we actually found the late developers have an advantage. And so that confused us because we would assume the early developers bigger, taller, uh, stronger at that point of time. And uh, Megan suggested that it might actually be the case that actually the earlies are going through the growth spurt and they might be experiencing adolescent awkwardness and that might actually be a disadvantage. And so I suggested Megan then go and break the data down by the pre circa post peak height velocity. And what we saw was that dip in terms of coach evaluations of performance through that point of time. Um, So suggesting that if you are looking at match grades, it's not just a case of are they early on time and late, but also are they in the middle of the growth spurt? Because if you're in the middle of your growth spurt, it's really, really difficult to call a player at that point of time because they may simply have that individual dip and then come back out of it afterwards. And of course, Southampton talked a lot about Gareth Bale as being a perfect example of that, going through his growth spurt relatively late on at 15, having that dip in performance and then coming back out. 
So now when clubs such as Southampton are looking at the players and they're evaluating at the end of the season, it's not just are you early on time and late and looking at different grades when you're playing up or playing down. It's also are you in the middle of the growth spot? And if they are in the middle of the growth spot and they do see that decrement in performance, we'll go back and look at the kid beforehand. Were they still a good player when they were before the growth spot? You know, is what you're seeing a temporary blip or were they always a bad player? So it's a case of kind of going back, reviewing the information, thinking, actually, no, this is probably the growth spurt, the awkwardness kicking in, taking that time to retrain them at that point of time, uh, focus upon coordination, core strength, balance, helping them adjust and transition through that phase, and then hopefully come straight back out afterwards and, and not get rid of them being the, the kind of key thing. So that's been quite exciting because obviously that work uh, helped us identify that issue. And of course, I think Southampton have changed the practice since then in terms of evaluation of players, having both age and maturity specific standards for when they're evaluating players at the end of the season. So that's been really nice. Uh, the work David's been doing at uh, Bournemouth has also been very good. Uh, we've had a, a lot of interest around the subject of growth related injuries. It's a common thing that we see across pretty much most of the clubs. And uh, so David and Ben have uh, just... Uh, finished a season-long study where they uh, put in an intervention to try and reduce injuries as the kids were going through the growth spot. And uh, they used a series of three criteria. It was where the kids between 88 to 94% of adult stature, because that's typically the point where the kids are hitting their peak growth spot. Uh, but were they also above, I think it was about seven and a half centimetres growth in terms of stature at that point of time, but also above three and a half centimetres in terms of lower leg growth. And if you hit at least two of those three criteria, you went into a three month uh, intervention. And it was just 90 minutes uh, per week, but it was focused upon core strength, lower body strength, uh, balance, coordination, a lot of the activities done in sock feet. And then they would take the kids out of the sessions where they were doing a lot of things such as futsal, which is a lot of accelerations and decelerations, which might put a, color, a lot of stress on the growing bones and the, particularly the growth plates at that point of time. And uh, those sessions, interestingly enough, they were they were a Wednesday session. So they would have normal training on the Tuesday, the, the, the growth maturity movement sessions on the uh, Wednesday and then back to normal training on the Thursday. So it gave a wee bit of a gap between those more intense days as well. And they ran that for three months and then they re-evaluated the kids. Some of them stayed in the intervention, some of them moved on, some of them moved in and then compared at the end of the season to see if there were reductions in terms of injury incidents and burden. And what they found was really quite incredible. They completely crushed that big peak of growth related injuries during the uh, middle of the growth spot. The uh, players who had the three characteristics who were most at risk, they dropped about 72% in terms of injury incidents, which was fantastic. And uh, injury burden really dropped quite significantly as well in that group. It went from about 330 days per 1,000 hours to just under one day. Uh, now, the lovely thing about that is, number one, you're safeguarding the kids. They're not picking up those injuries. And that means that they're playing more as well. Uh, if they get the injuries at that point of time, it could be anywhere up to a year that they're out for some of these growth-related injuries. And then in addition, those injuries can sort of, uh, sort of nag the kids for one or two years after that as well. So by just keeping them healthy at that point of time, they're still playing football, but you are keeping them slightly healthier in terms of reducing the load on them and prescribing them more developmentally appropriate training. And, and to see that actually result in, in significant changes across the season was incredibly encouraging. Now, I was uh, presenting with the UKSEA uh, last Monday and Paddy Roche from Arsenal was talking about his work at Arsenal, which follows a very, very similar kind of pattern to the work that David was doing and the work that Jan Willem had been doing previously at, at Ajax. And uh, Paddy's saying the same benefits. You know, if you better, if you more effectively identify when they're going through those phases, modify the training programs appropriately for the growing and developing child, that, yeah, you will see those reductions in terms of injuries. And from his perspective, they're starting to get those drop-offs and injuries at Arsenal as well, which is really positive to see, I think. So that's been exciting in terms of being able to make some changes there. And of course, Tachel uh, is doing similar research when she was with British Gymnastics, showing similar spikes of injuries as the kids were going through the growth spurt. And since her PhD has been completed, Tachel's now actually working directly with British Gymnastics, uh, focusing in particularly around those areas of development and reducing uh, issues associated with load-related injuries. So that's been great, been really good fun. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but is the gymnastics context a bit more interesting because gymnasts tend, it tends to be that it favours later maturers, doesn't it, as opposed yeah. to your typical field sport. So how does that change when you go into a population where the bias is almost flipped on its head? 
it actually makes it even more difficult, I think, because if you are a late developer, that means you're going through your growth spurt at a much older age. And in sports such as gymnastics, and particularly in ballet, who we also work with, who Siobhan Mitchell's work, we typically see that as age goes up, training load also goes up. So if you're a late developing girl or boy in either of those sports, well, you might be doing 20 to 30 hours of training per week when you go through the growth spurt. Uh, in contrast, if you're an early developer, it might only be 10 or 15 hours training. So you're talking about late developers going through a much, much higher load. And this is why when Siobhan sat down with the ballet coaches and we, we, we gave them a gimme question, which is a really simple question. What's better in ballet, early on time or late? And we know that ballet selects for late developers. But half of the coaches said early. And we were like, can you explain that? And they said, well, it gets the growing out of the way. We were like, well, what do you mean it gets the growing out of the way? And they explained exactly that, that if you had your growth spurt early on, you were 10 or 11 years of age, training was light, less likelihood of injury. If you are a late developer, maybe 15 or 16 with some of the really late developing girls, you're training maybe up to 20, 30 hours per week. And in addition, you're probably also going through the period of testing out to go into the professional schools. And if you've had adolescent awkwardness and you lost your mobility, because obviously the skeleton is growing much, much quicker than the soft tissues afterwards, there's going to be that like six months delay between the two. And if you've lost your mobility and you've got that awkwardness kicking in, you're testing out to get into the schools, you're absolutely stuffed. You know, in addition to coming down with lots of injuries, in addition, you're losing that sort of skill base just at that point where you're testing it to get into the pro schools. So they actually felt that the late developers had, although they had the best bodies and the aesthetics for a sport and activity such as ballet, uh, they were struggling because the growth spurt was hitting at the most inopportune time for them at that point. So it's a really fascinating one. And Siobhan's actually working very closely with Niall at the uh, Royal Ballet School to put things into place so they can better understand the nature of the relationship between growth and maturation there and better manage the dancers as you go through that point of time. Because, you know, sports as gymnastics and ballet, there are a lot of injuries. And I think it is because those are often sports where there is a lot of training and investment at a very early age. And if you're doing that through the growth spurt, it's going to be challenging. In fact, there was a Brazilian study that looked at young gymnasts in their Olympic development programs, and uh, they were training about 30 hours per week. 70% of them had growth-related injuries to the wrists. There were stress fractures, there were sclerosis, there was all sorts of different issues there. And uh, it's no wonder if you're overloading kids at that point of time, then yeah, it's just, a, it's just an accident waiting to happen. That's really interesting. So if the, the ballet instructors and teachers are, are saying that actually it's better to be an early mature than late, what does their data suggest? Is that what you saw in their population or was it? Oh yeah, there's, so the data is very skewed towards late developers. Uh, now it's an interesting one because a lot of people have always said, ooh, uh, participating in uh, gymnastics or uh, ballet will lead to delayed maturation because of the pressures in the environment, the emphasis upon so much training, lack of energy intake and with eating disorders and all sorts. And I guess to some extent that could be true if you were in an environment which was an inappropriate environment for a young child where there maybe was an emphasis upon leanness, the child was maybe restricting their eating in some kind of way. Well, if it's like anything, if you restrict the energy coming in and the nutrients which are required for growth, the body's not going to grow. So if you were in that environment, then yes, you potentially could get a delay in terms of maturity. But if you look at some Adam Baxter Jones work that he did with uh, the Federation for International Gymnastics, it actually showed that gymnasts who have appropriate levels of training and have healthy diets and healthy environments, they're also delayed in maturity. It's just that they select for late developers. So those sports will naturally select for the late developer. The challenge is, however, is that that late developer, when they hit the growth spurt, is going to have a tougher time. Uh, you will get some early developers surviving in there, but the early developers have to be, they're kind of like the underdogs, I guess. You know, we talk about the underdogs being the late developers in football and rugby. It's the opposite effect in sort of gymnastics and ballet. Uh, and it may be as well that some of those early developers have the body type, which is maybe more appropriate towards Maybe some of the more power-based activities, such as, you know, the vault, for example, or uh, maybe some of the floor exercises. And so that's where they may actually come to their, uh, having a particular advantage. Uh, but they've also got to be pretty resilient, I think, to, to survive in those types of systems because they've got a lot of things going against them. It's really interesting because I guess, although uh, 
although you know people would suggest that football is a late specialization sport the reality is it's not the reality is people are specializing in football earlier and earlier and earlier yeah and the same is also true of ballet and gymnastics you know our training is 20 hours doesn't really allow for a lot of other things yes um, and and what we're kind of suggesting suggesting is that in both contexts in the football context you know being a late maturer is probably coinciding with when decisions are being made yes. and in the gymnastics and ballet context the same kind of thing but flipped on its head so it's really interesting that you're seeing a similar problem mm-hmm. relations that are a bit different but all, all kind of specializing at the same time with decisions being made about the future of that individual athlete yeah anytime you're making a call on a player i think it's challenging and you really need to know where they are in terms of their developmental status as i said you know with southampton with bale late developer 15 going through the growth spot and he just didn't look like he did when he was a younger boy. He'd been identified as talented for a long period of time as well. He was one of the top players there. Uh, and then you see the sudden dip, and you have to make the call at that time. So do you make that judgment based upon what you see in front of you, which is maybe not that great, or do you go back and actually look at the quality of the performance? Now, we were recently over with the uh, French FA at uh, Clairefontaine, and Sam Scott from Southampton came along, and we presented a lot of the work that we've been doing on growth and maturity, and he presented presented some case examples from Southampton and he presented uh, some videos actually of one of the wee lads who's now I think in the first team and uh, he was a late developer. They showed some of the games when he was playing as a young boy and uh, there's a classic case where he doesn't make this play or this pass forward to, uh, to a forward who's running in, into space and he passes back instead. And Sam says, you look at that, you would you would make the decision that, okay, he's not got the right decision here. He's passed it back when he should have passed it forward. But he says, we've got to keep in mind, this is late developer. He kind of kicked the ball that far. And so what he actually did in that instance is the correct thing. So that's an instance where we need to know the maturity and it informs our evaluation of the player. He then shows a video of the player when they're in the middle of the growth spurt and they can barely control the ball at all. They're losing the ball regularly. They're having difficulty in terms of the close control. And he says, but he was smack in the middle of this growth spot. And we went back and we looked at the video previously and we said, yeah, actually, he's a good player. Let's put him in a program where we address those kind of issues, give him the opportunity to transition more effectively. And then you see him in the videos post growth spot and he's knocking the ball in from 30 yards. He's, he's a big, strong boy at that point of time. And he says at every stage there, we need to know what level of maturity, whether they were advanced or delayed, are they in the middle of the growth spurt, to fully understand and evaluate this boy most effectively. And it's never going to be the big sort of a key determining factor. And Southampton are very careful because some coaches will make an excuse for the late maturing boys sometime. Oh, yeah, he's a late mature. We've got to keep him in, etc. But it's one of those factors you need to consider when you're making those types of decisions. And all you need to do is, you know, go back and look at the old classic fitness curves that have come out of the Belgian studies in Leuven. And the early early matures are dominating in pretty much every fitness test, particularly with the boys from the ages of 12 all the way through to 18. And if you think about it, that's the period of time we're selecting those boys. But once you follow up to 20 to 30, it's no difference. And in many occasions, the late developers are the best players or the, or the most fit or performing the best. Uh, but the problem is, is you're asked to make that decision at 14 or 15 sometimes. And it can be incredibly difficult if you're not making some kind of awareness or assessments as it relates to growth and maturity. Did you see the study that came out fairly recently that basically uh, looked at a whole load of different parameters to, to I can't remember if it was predict or, or uh, correlate with academy success. And the one that came out over to overall was the 20 meter speed. Yes, that came from uh, the Netherlands. And uh, so, yeah, they looked at a range of different factors uh, looking at the prediction and 20 meter speed did come through as the first one. And again, I would argue that that's probably closely related to biological maturity, because if we look at advanced maturity, upper body strength, speed, uh, power, that's where the strongest associations are. And I think they used the maturity offset method in that study. Uh, It didn't come through as prediction, but it's not surprising because I think there's a lot of issues around the error at that point of time with the method. It can be anywhere up to one to three years off, particularly when you're working with early developing boys, of which most boys in academies will be. Uh, but yes, it was speed that came through as a number one predictor there. I've seen a couple of similar projects and assessments done in the academies here in the UK. And uh, the most common one here has been the 505 agility, which obviously has some element of speed with it. Uh, but the agility seems to be the most uh, common one over here in the UK in terms of predicting uh, success. 
that said, I think Arsenal did a, a really nice study recently where they looked at uh, a range of factors. And I think what came through was uh, time spent out injured. <laughs> the more time you're spent out injured, the less chance you have of making that transition onwards. And a few of the clubs have mentioned that to me from their own internal assessments that that's what they see too. This is why we think it's so important to monitor the growth maturity to keep the boys healthy through the growth spurt. Because if they're not playing, well, they're not getting a chance to develop their skills and you're not getting a chance to really truly be evaluated. I was over in the uh, Netherlands last week and uh, Jus van Dijk, who was uh, Van Gaal's assistant at Manchester United and at Bayern, was at one of the meetings and he was chatting away with him and he was saying, well, would you just stop boys playing football during the growth spot? I goes, no, you don't stop them playing football. They need to continue to play football at that point of time. It's just you need to better manage that load at that point. And uh, he goes, well, but if you take them out of uh, football, then they're not going to develop football skills and uh, they'll never progress. And I goes, yeah, but if you just hammer them at that point of time as well, they'll get injured and then they'll be completely out of everything and then they won't progress. And he goes, yeah, you're, you're spot on. It's a case of finding that healthy balance. I think Ajax obviously did a fantastic job when Jan Velen Tunison was down there. And I think like so Ben Bradley and David Johnson are, are starting to look at that as his body, trying to find that sort of healthy balance to keep them developing, keep them challenging, because you know you want to challenge them, to train them, to develop them at that point of time. Uh, but you don't want to injure them. That's the key thing. And you, so you just need to be a little bit more careful. Now, one of the things that you, you've mentioned uh, so far is the maturity offset method. And mm -hmm. Spending some time discussing, uh, I guess, how things have advanced in the research, and that actually now we kind of had have some gold standard tools and some substitute tools, and then some that actually we've realised perhaps aren't so reliable. So, tell yeah. us a little bit about you know what are some of the tools that are out there, and what's yeah. what has the research evolved in terms of saying actually these are some of our most accurate, and these aren't perhaps as accurate as we'd like. Yeah. So you mentioned the maturity offset method. So that. When we first started to work with the Premier League, that was the most common method that was being used in the clubs. And uh, it was developed uh, in Canada by uh, uh, Bob Meerwald and Adam Baxter-Jones. And it was on the basis that uh, if we look at the difference between torso length and leg length, because obviously torso length is where we get to do most of our growing during puberty, if we can look at those ratios, it would be possible to get an idea of where a kid was in relation to their developmental journey and maybe predict that peak height velocity. And peak height velocity for a long period of time has been used in longitudinal studies to identify if somebody's early, on time or late. And so the principle is great. And I know that uh, Gaston Boonen and Bob Molina had tried to create a similar equation previously, but they didn't feel that it was accurate. They hadn't gotten anywhere with it. Uh, uh, Adam and uh, Bob Muirwald had developed their own method and it seemed to be quite good in terms of predicting and so it came out, it got published and a lot of people were like fantastic, this is a non-invasive method where you can do some simple measurements and we can predict whether the kid's going to be early on time and late, it's fantastic um, the nice thing about it too is you can also tick down to the growth spurt so you can get an idea of like exactly when the growth spurt hopefully going to be taking off and you can maybe modify your training to reduce injury but also have an idea when they're out of that zone as well. So from a functional perspective, lots of value with the method. Now, the method, as I said, was very popular. And in terms of validation, it was doing really well in terms of predicting greater speed, strength, power, et cetera. So in terms of a prediction tool, trying to understand mechanisms behind uh, maturity effects, it was fantastic. The problem, however, was apparent when it started looking at maturity biases across different age groups. And what we would find is that in the younger age groups, we would get uh, very early ages of peak height velocity, uh, suggesting everybody was an early developer. But when you looked at the older age groups, everybody was incredibly late. You know, you might get 14.8 or 15 as the mean age of peak height velocity. And that doesn't fall in line with what we would expect, because we normally see maturity biases towards early developers go up and up. And I remember in one of uh, the uh, studies with the lower league, teams in England, I think the average age of peak height velocity was about 15 for the under 17s or under 16s. And it really didn't make any sense. All of a sudden we would just have nothing but late developers at that point. And so Bob Molina had questioned it and he went out and he got a data set from Poland where they actually had longitudinal data of children and he knew who was early, who was on time, who was late. And they could actually predict exactly when the kids had their peak height velocity or assess it or estimate it because they had the longitudinal data. So they knew exactly when the kids did hit peak height velocity. They then took the Muirwald equation and they tested it at the different age groups. And if you were to look at just the general population, you'll see that the 
younger kids at under predicts age at peak height velocity and at around 12 to 14 it's pretty close to actually being accurate but then after that it increases so you get later peak height velocity so that was explaining what people have been seeing with lots of late developers in the 16s and 17s but lots of early developers with the younger ones so there was clearly a systematic error there associated with age but it appeared that the average error around 12 14 wasn't bad and that's age of peak height velocity so that might be important the problem was, however, is that Bob then broke it down into the earlies and the lates. And what you saw was that the error was augmented in the earlies and the lates. And if you had early maturing boy or a late maturing boy, you weren't looking at maybe 0.2 or 0.3 error. You were looking at anywhere between one to three years in terms of the error. And that's where it becomes problematic because if you're using this method uh, for say predicting variance, fantastic, and it'll do that. But if you're looking at it to identify exactly where the kid is in the growth spurt, it could be off by two or three years. And so if you're looking to adjust the training program, then that's problematic because you might do it too early, you might do it too late. If you're using that method to adjust for a fitness performance score, like, okay, well, compare your relative to your age group and then compare your relative to your bio age. Well, the bio age could be off by two or three years. So your adjustment is not going to be really reflective of, of the true issues around maturity. And the challenge that we have is that when we're working in sports, the athletes we're often most concerned about are those early developers and the late developers. And with the over and underestimation in both groups, everybody aggresses to the mean. And so it's really hard to differentiate. And so if you're using it on one on one practical basis, it's problematic. And, you know, Adam's a good friend. Uh, I don't know Bob Meerwald well, but I, I know Adam is a good friend. He's an excellent scholar. Uh, but, you know, you have to look at the data that's in front of you. And if you see those types of errors, you have to be conscious of it. And that's why we built in the average error into the uh, PMA for the Premier League. So clubs could adjust for the average error. But the problem is, is we don't have the adjustment. Well, we actually do have numbers now. So we could build in systems where you could say, I think this boy's an early maturer. Let's adjust for the average error for the early maturer. So you could do that. But again, it's, it, it's challenging. And uh, so anyway, since then, people have moved on more so to using the Kamish Roche method, which is based on percentage of predicted adult stature. And uh, this method has error with it as well uh, in terms of its prediction. It's a median error of about 2.2 centimetres in boys, about 1.8 centimetres in girls, which equates to about plus negative 1.5% of adult stature. And uh, so if you look at that method, it's actually quite consistent through the age groups. It really doesn't show that systematic variance with age. It bumps up a couple of millimeters during the growth spurt, but then it comes down obviously as you're closer to your full true adult height. And uh, so with, with that method, it's a little bit more predictable with the error. Uh, we've also looked at the error across early on time and late maturing boys in some of the academies that we work with and the error appears to be consistent across whether you're early on time or late whether you're a tall player or a short player there doesn't appear to be any difference in terms of the amount of error with the prediction equations so we've started using that more in, in the academies because it uh, it appears to give us it, it predicts the same variance in the same kind of way as the, the offset method would do but it appears to be a little bit more effective in terms of identifying whether people truly are advanced on time or delayed um, and uh, in terms of better predicting when they're going through the growth spurt. But obviously, when we're looking at the clubs and we're looking at the players, it's not just looking at one maturity indicator. You're also looking at the growth velocity, how fast are the kids growing in their centimetres and their weights. And uh, if they are at 91%, which is smack at the top of the growth spurt, and they're like, Eight, eight kilograms, uh, nine centimeters, then yeah, we can be pretty damn confident they're smack in the middle of the growth spot. But it's also eyeballing the kid and looking at the kid. And if it was a boy, for example, are they broadening in the shoulder? Is all the growth largely in the torso? Are they putting on the lean mass? That also gives us further indication. So it's about looking at as many factors as possible to help you inform that decision. Uh, a challenge with the Camish Roche is it does require biological parent heights. And uh, some clubs don't use it because they're worried about the ethical issues of asking a kid about what your dad's height is or your mom's height is. I, I personally don't see that as being a major issue. We use that method in our research in schools all the time. We've never come across any problems with it. Some clubs organizations may have concerns about it, but I think if it's handled effectively, it really shouldn't be a problem at all. Uh, if you don't have the parent heights, you could always put in the average heights, but you would have to recognize that as a limitation. Uh, that's what is recommended in the Camus Roche paper where they talk about the equation. But uh, yeah, you, you could use it, but you would just recognize that as a limitation.
Uh, one thing we have done recently, and this came out of James Parr's work and also Jill Myberg's work with Man United and, and the LTA, was that we have now translated those percentage values for adult heights into bio ages. And uh, so 91%, surprise, surprise, in boys, it's 13.8 uh, years and 12.1 in girls, which is exactly where we'd expect peak height velocity to be. And the nice thing about having that bio age is coaches and scouts understand it. So if you said to a coach or a scout, well, it's this percentage and that Z score, often they're like, what are you talking about? But if you say to that boy is 12, but biologically he's 14 and a half, the coach will say, oh yeah, I could have told you that. And it's just a way of communicating more effectively. And uh, so I think that's been a big benefit. And uh, it's helped getting a lot of buy-in as well from the, the coaches and the scouts who are really important in terms of addressing these challenges that we have with growth and maturity. Um, so yeah, those are the two most common sort of uh, somatic methods. We do have more invasive methods, skeletal hand x-rays, et cetera, but they're only usually typically used if we haven't got a clue maybe what age the kid is because we don't have a birthday or if there's a particular concern around an injury at that point of time or a growth-related disorder. It's only those occasions we might use those. So ideally, you want to be steering away from perhaps the, the maturity offset method and using, at this point in time, the Camus-Roche method until something perhaps more accurate. My, my recommendations at this point, yeah, would be to go with the Camus Roche. If I'm talking to the clubs, I would go with that method. They can take the maturity offset and they can, they can have that as a piece of information as well. But like every method, they need to recognize the limitations. There was a recent paper that came out saying, well, all methods have errors. Uh, yes, all methods have errors, but some are, these errors are different. Now, as I said, the Camus Roche doesn't appear to have that variance in error for the early on times and lates the maturity offset does and so you need to recognize that when you're using the maturity offset method uh, so that's why yeah, i would go camish roche but also collect as much other data as you possibly can and if that's maturity offset you can certainly do that at the same point of time the more information you can gather the better you can make an informed decision as to the developmental status of the child hmm. and i've seen like people who are listening and you know maybe don't have the infrastructure of an arsenal or a southampton might be thinking mm -hmm. sounds really complicated but actually there's a lot of people out there We've shared some open source stuff that can be used. Jamie Salter recently yep. his his maturation calculator to include bio age. And so, you know, once we've collected mom and dad's height, whether that's in person or you yep. know, submitted by Google Forms or whatever, it's just a case of updating the date of testing and the kids' height and weight, and we get all those those bits of data. Yes. So it's not as hard as people might think, is it? No, definitely not. Uh, if 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 you got the so I spoke to Jamie actually just this week about the system he's got in terms of the Excel sheet, which you can download or you email Jamie, he'll give it to you directly, but it does all the methods. It does all the variations of the offset method. So there is a Franson method, a Moore method, and obviously the original Mirwall, but it also does the Camish Roche. He's got the BioAge built into there now as well. And I think he's looking to build in the height prediction uh, in there as well with the confidence intervals in the future. Uh, but yeah, that's an easy, simple tool that anybody can uh, download and use. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a valuable, uh, a valuable sort of, a, sort of method to be using if you're going to be monitoring working with young kids and you're not really talking about taking a huge amount of measurements as I said it's once you've got the parents bio heights in there and you have got regular height weight measurements and you've got the dates of birth of the kids it's it's an easy thing to do and you know as I said the Premier League clubs are doing about every three four months any school any organization could do it every six months or so uh, and uh, do those types of assessments and, uh, you know, one thing we also see often is that uh, people talk about the inaccuracy of the method. It makes me laugh sometimes. Yeah, all methods have error associated with them, but I think some people like to over egg the error associated with the method. Uh, you know, the method in terms of explaining the variance in adult height, you're probably looking at about 90% of the variance in adult height being 90% uh, plus of the variance being explained by the Camus Roche method. Whereas you look at some of the questionnaires that are out there in terms of uh, talent development, some of them are barely explaining 40% of the variance. They're touting those methods as being fantastic scales, excellent scales, very reliable, very valid. And then they point at the Camus Roche and go, oh, that's terrible. You know, that's a really bad method. But the problem is, is people aren't actually really looking at the true validity. You know, it's quite quite an interesting one because a lot of folk will often say, oh, I don't think that's an accurate or reliable method. But then you look at all the other methods you've used, the psychological scales, the fitness tests within your studies, and they're actually a hell of a lot less reliable than the Camus Roche. So it's all about recognizing limitations with, with methods. So what are some of the like, I mean, I guess, firstly, sports, but maybe within that organizations that you see as being kind of really leading the way in monitoring 
progressive maturation and applying some of that data to real world decision making. Yeah, uh, football, undoubtedly. Football got the head start in terms of, you know, we started the growth maturity screening program with them. Uh, through that, there was education and education is absolutely vital. You know, if you can educate the people on the importance of the growth and maturity, how to assess it, how to interpret data when it comes through, and they have that understanding, plus they can also come to you if they have particular questions, then that is undoubtedly helpful in terms of changing practice. And that was the benefit with the Premier League is we had all of those education uh, programmes that uh, James Bond sent up and uh, you know we had created the PMA to give people accurate, reliable data on a consistent basis. And then once that information came into the clubs, all of a sudden the practitioners, the physios, the coaches started asking questions and looking at how they could use this data and of course, they have a better understanding of developing athletes and the challenges than I do. And they started, you know, asking me questions specifically about could we do this? Could we try this out? Whether it be biobanding or for competition or biobanding for training or different methods for evaluating players. And that really pushed the practice. Uh, now, some of that practice was already there, you know, in clubs and organizations. If you look at the work Mandy Johnson was doing at United, it was way ahead of her time. Uh, but it was a case of finding those aspects in terms of good quality work and then bringing them back on in relation to the new systems and looking at them a little bit closer. Uh, Arsenal, I think, are, are doing a fantastic job and, and Southampton in particular in terms of investing in uh, growth and maturity and taking into account uh, Poddy, uh, Roche and Perry Stewart at Arsenal, uh, Sam Scott, TJ uh, down at uh, Southampton uh, doing fantastic work in that area. Uh, so those, I think, would be two really good examples of organisations who have taken it on. Uh, gymnastics, I think it was quite important for gymnastics because, you know, gymnastics has a lot of injuries, as does ballet, uh, particularly as kids go through the growth spot. And I was really pleased to see that uh, they recognised that. And that's why we set up the project, you know, with both uh, ballet and uh, with gymnastics to, to start studying that. And uh, people such as Tate Chill and Siobhan are now starting to implement that work in those organisations. And some of it they're learning directly from football. Uh, but obviously what works in football might not always work exactly in, in ballet. So it's a case of them taking those ideas and then working with the stakeholders in ballet and figuring out, well, this is relevant and could we use it? And well, how would we modify it to make it effective in ballet? Uh, the nice thing now as well is that we're starting to see a lot of interest overseas uh, in this work that we're doing. You know, England is clearly leading the way in this area. And uh, so all of a sudden, you know, we've got the French FA looking at it. I've just come back from the Netherlands and Belgium and uh, their clubs are now starting to pick up on it. And it's kind of ironic because some of the best practice originally came from there in the first place. And certainly as it relates to Belgium with the Futures Programme, uh, I had a chance to meet with the guy who heads up the Futures Programme uh, just uh, last week in, in, in Belgium. Well, it was, it was in Netherlands, but he, he was from Belgium. And the work they're doing there is incredible. It really is good in terms of their awareness of growth and maturity. And while it originally had focused on kind of relative age and maturity, they're now quite clear that these are two separate phenomena and that often that quarter four is actually a very early maturing boy. But the thing that I really took back from them is that uh, they're now focusing more of their attention and talent development on the futures team than actually their under 15s, the regular under 16s teams, because they say, you know, we have to enter these under 15 and under 16s competitions, but our teams are largely full of big early maturing boys, just like everybody else's, you know, because you want to win those competitions. But all the talent, all the players who are really coming to the forefront uh, in terms of progressing on and getting international teams, they're all coming from the Futures programme. And so actually we're spending a lot more time working on those guys, which is really sad and nice to see. But they also recognise that some of those early developers could also benefit from the challenge as well. And that it shouldn't just be that you're a late developer and that's going to be the great thing. Those early developers also need to be challenged. And uh, the chap gave uh, an example of Lukaku as a really good example of an early developer who actually thought like a late developer and he was talking about Lukaku in terms of uh, studying the game uh, watching all of the Premier League games at the weekend better understanding defenses and taking time out to think about his strengths and his weaknesses uh, acting very much what those late in the way that those late developers are typically having to do to survive in the system but here's an early developer going out of his way uh, showing that he can also develop that skill set too and this is something a lot of people always forget they always think that we're out there trying to save the late developers the reality is that probably the person who gets shafted the most is the early developer because they do fantastically well, 13, 14, 15, but then they don't grow anymore. 
and they struggle because they've relied on that physicality and they need to develop the other elements of their game. And so, yeah, great expectations at 15, but out of the system by the time they get to 18 or 19 or so. And so I think that's really where we need to, this is the benefit of the biobanning, pushing up and then pulling down, et cetera, and, and mixing up that experience to almost flip it on its head so that every now and then that early developer is the late developer and that, that late developer is the early developer. Just making sure there's a, a, a good breadth of experience and a diversity of challenge presented to them is clearly important. So yeah, number of sports. I think football probably is ahead of the game. Uh, other sports are starting to catch up and I think they'll be looking at it in slightly different ways as well based on the different challenges that they have and they can all learn from each other which is quite nice but it's, it's just been an exciting time in growth and maturity research because the likes of Melina, Baxter Jones, they've been studying this for three or four decades and now all of a sudden we're starting to see the translation from all that work translating through into changes in practice and it's been an exciting time to, to work alongside the clubs in that area. So where do you think the future of growth and maturation research lies? Like if you start to, you know, there was that initial bit around observation and is there a bias? And then, okay, can we start to intervene within that bias? And I guess now a theme is coming out around, you know, injuries and can we intervene yeah. in the situation of injuries? Where, where do you see that going in the future? I think the injuries is a big one. Uh, we've started creating heat maps now. So based upon the data that we've got from Bournemouth, we were able to look at uh, the maturity status and the growth rate combined because we know both of them are important and to create these heat maps where we would be able to identify the phases where the, the growth-related injuries were much, much more likely to occur. And it was basically high noon. It was 91% of adult height and 15 centimetres per, per, per year. If you're in that kind of category, boy, you better watch out. That was the highest risk zone. But I think what we also need to do is to think that, okay, growth is also distal to proximal. So just having that high noon or 91%, that's going to be fine for maybe Osgood Schlatters, which kicks in at that point of time. But if we're looking at Severs, well, high noon is going to be around 85%. If we are looking at uh, spondylosis, if we're looking at PARS, uh, hip avulsions, for example, that's going to be around 96%. And we actually have Sahabi Monasterio from Atletico Bilbao staying with us just now at the University of Bath. He's over here for a three-month research trip, and uh, he's got a fantastic data set that shows exactly this. You know, we grow in our feet before we grow in our lower legs, before we grow in our torsos. And the pattern of the injuries follows the exact same pattern as well. So if we're looking at certain types of injuries, they're probably more likely to present themselves at different times. Now, that brings me on to another conversation I had recently. Uh, it, was, it was probably my best experience so far on Twitter. I had uh, retweeted a picture of two horses' knees. And it's really not their knees. It's basically their radius and the all now, but it's basically where we would consider a horse's knees. And it was a, a company who breeds horses, and they said that it's that time of year where we look, look at the two-year-olds and see which two-year-old horses can take the most uh, sort of a, a training or increase their load of training. And of course, the, the picture in the x-ray uh, was of the horse's knees and one of the horses had a closed growth plate and the other one had a wide open growth plate. And so the argument here was that, uh, you know, this horse is fully mature. Yes, it can take a higher load. And this one is still growing. So be a bit, a bit careful with that horse. And so I retweeted the image and I tag all my PhD students in it. And uh, I says, oh, this looks familiar. Thinking about the relationship between injury, growth rate and maturity and within about five minutes the the company had contacted me and said look we want to talk uh we're really interested in the work that you're doing and we'd like to learn a little bit more about it because we think it may have some application to horses and uh we've spoken to our vet and uh our vet thinks actually no there is no relationship between maturity and injury in horses but he still wants to chat as well so I thought, well, I know nothing about horses, you know, uh, but I'm happy to have a conversation. But I do happen to have uh, Polly McGuigan in our department, who's an expert. She did her PhD in horses and injuries, uh, was a horse rider growing up as well. So she knows some inside out. So she came along to the meeting as well. And uh, so we sat down in the meeting and the, the vet said, look, you know, we've done this. We haven't found any association at all, but we want to know what you do in football. And so I said, uh, look, well, what we do is we start measuring at nine and uh, some kids will take off at that point, but some kids will be much later when they take off. And uh, we look at when they go into that phase of the growth spurt and we look at the growth rate at that point of time. And we see that certain injuries present themselves at certain different times. And the idea is that if you can better manage the load at that point of time, so not take them completely out of it, but just manage the load a little bit more effectively, prescribe a developmentally appropriate training, then we just don't get the injuries. And then we ramp it up as as soon as they start to come through. I mentioned the work Jan Vil and Tunison be doing at IACS and we were following the same principles. And at that point, the guy goes, Sean, I think you're onto something here. He says, we've probably been doing it wrong in horses. 
he says that distal to proximal thing that goes on in horses as well. So horses will grow in the lower leg and then the upper leg and then eventually it's the torso that stretches out with horses. And he says the types of injuries and growth related injuries probably also follow distal to proximal pattern in our horses. And the problem is, is we're only looking at what was their radius, which is the horse's kneecaps, and we're only using that as our sign. In addition, we're only measuring them at two years, which is the equivalent of about a 15 or 16 year old human being. They've probably gone through the growth spurt at that point of time. And so what we've got is just the survivors. The ones who've gotten injured don't come to us. And so that's why we're seeing no association. And so he was really interested in saying what we need to do in horses is actually stick start to go back because they take regular assessments and x-rays of the horses in these uh, programs is to actually go and start measuring different segments of the horse's growth at certain points of time and if they could do that then they felt that actually there may potentially be an association between the occurrence of injuries in a distal to proximal manner and if they could find that and if they started measuring a lot earlier as well so maybe one year of age that it might be better to detect that association and if there is an association potentially, uh, potentially prevent it as well. So it was really just fascinating to hear his perspective on it. Uh, and uh, you never know, he, he was very interested in following it up. He apparently works with a lot of the uh, top breeders in the United Kingdom. And so he was going to talk to some of his uh, organizations that he works with to see about potentially maybe looking into that area. So I think that could be quite fun. Uh, it'd be certainly different from football and gymnastics, I guess, looking at it in a different species. So, so I think next time we talk, you'll, uh, you'll be a VIP at Cheltenham. Yeah. Uh, the other way, I think, in terms of where to look at it, and I think Jus uh, van Dijk brought this up when we were over there in the Netherlands. He said, look, this is all very good. You've shown this as a maturity selection bias. You've told us that early maturers are bigger, stronger, faster, more powerful. You've shown us that in games with GPS, they run further distances, they hit higher accelerations, they uh, hit greater maximum speeds. Uh, and some of your data as well also show that they are uh, more engaged in games as well. So if we look at offensive and defensive actions, passing, shooting, interception, tackles, are more likely to be involved in those types of things. And that's all very good, but what we really need to start looking at now is the qualities of those behaviors. So there's one thing passing a lot, but did, did your actual passes make the mark you know uh where the decisions that you took the, the shots you took are effective and successful and that's where you need to go with your research more in, in terms of better understanding the game and you know football is a decision making game and being able to look at the success of those decisions and those plays would be the next step now we've actually just finished a study with southampton where we went into a six-week biobanding phase and we've actually started looking at scanning behavior and I don't know if you're familiar with scanning behavior, but scanning behavior is in the 10 seconds before you receive a ball, how often do you look away from the ball? And Geir Jurda from Norway has done a lot of work in this area. And uh, he found that the more successful players are scanning on a very, very frequent basis. And so we thought to ourselves, well, in an age group game, would the late maturer have to scan just to be successful? They'd have to have their head in a swivel because they, you know, physically they were disadvantaged. And would the early developer not have that kind of challenge? And if then, if you threw them into a biobanded game, would it almost flip it on its head? And the reason we thought that might happen is because when we did move those early maturing boys up in the biobanded games, where they were not having those physical advantages because they were getting challenged more, all of a sudden they came back to us and said, Crikey, that was tough. I had to think faster. I had to get the rid of the ball a hell of a lot more quickly. It was, a, it was much, much faster the game than I'm used to. Uh, but I liked it and I benefited from that. And so we started taking a look at some of the data that's coming out in the scanning behavior. We haven't analyzed it all yet, but the early data coming through is suggesting that the early developers are scanning less in age group games. The late developers are scanning more in age group games. All of a sudden you pop them into the bio-banded games. Guess what happens? All of a sudden the early developers are scanning a hell of a lot more and the late developers are scanning more as well, uh, or scanning less uh, because obviously, you know, they're more physically matched. And so that, that was really interesting to find. And then the girls started looking at the success of their passes following scanning. And we found that the early developers in the bio-banded games, they were scanning more, but also being more successful with their passes. Whereas the late developers were actually going the opposite way. They were scanning less and being less successful with their passes. Now, the thoughts behind this is that maybe those early developers, when they're up playing, they're playing the much, much more conservative passes because there is no physical advantage anymore. If you're in an age group game, you can play that punt and rush type game uh, because you know you can outrun, outperform other individuals. 
And also you're playing against older, smarter boys who are probably taking on those leadership roles. You don't want to screw up. So you're going to play that conservative pass. Whereas maybe the late developers are taking more risks and chances when they buy abandoned games. So it was really nice to see that data coming through with a completely different methodology, completely different competition, supporting some of the stuff that had come from the other studies, which was just simply focus groups and conversations with kids. So I think that's where we need to start to go with the growth and maturity stuff is looking at more of the, the quality of the, the plays. I know Chris Towelson up at Hull, uh, who's now moved to Derby, uh, did some really nice work at Hull looking at passing networks uh, in biobanded games. Uh, right enough, they were small-sided games, so they might not be truly representative of what would happen in a biobanded 11v11 game where there's a lot more space to run around. But I think those types of studies where we're looking at more of the quality of the actions is where the research kind of needs to go a little bit more. Because uh, we know bigger, faster, stronger. We've got that down par. We have pretty good evidence that in-game they're, they're performing with higher sort of... Uh, sprinting metrics uh the early developers and in comparison to late developers and that just makes sense we know that they're dominating the game in terms of actions but we don't know the quality of those actions so i think it's taking it and moving it to the next level and that's exciting because those are areas i really don't know that much about but there's lots of wonderful scholars who have expertise in those areas so it's going to be a case of those individuals taking an interest in growth and maturity and us taking an interest of those areas and working together and looking at that research yeah, that is really interesting because it, it seems to be like the, the common theme in all of it is about providing the appropriate level of challenge for that individual, isn't it? Whether that is physically on the pit, yeah. whether that's in a rehab, prehab setting, or mm -hmm. that technically and tactically, you know, right from is this the right amount of training load on the pit? Mm -hmm. Are these guys making the right decision? Are they scanning? So what we're really talking about, and as you say, it's not just about protecting the late developer. It's also about stimulating and progressing the early developer. Yeah. Sure that they're progressing as best as possible as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I had two conversations this week, uh, one with the Dutch, one with the Swedes, and a big emphasis in those. Those are two very progressive countries and a big emphasis for them for their sports system is equality equality of opportunity. So it's not just about developing athletes, it's about giving an opportunity for all. And I know that Sweden has integrated was the UN uh, rights about opportunity and equality for all into their sort of uh, educational systems and sports systems. And, you know, good for them for doing that. And they're saying, okay, well, it's not just about better challenging or early on time and late developers. We also want a system where everybody has an opportunity to succeed because as a sports club and an organization, we need to do that. Uh, Rob Reed was recently talking on Twitter about uh, the ECB and saying that, you know, ECB to some extent is, is happy with the relative age effect being there because it's an efficient yet ineffective system. But if you look at the ECB's policy statements, it's all about giving an opportunity for everybody in cricket. And so just leaving a relative age effect, and I don't know whether ECB really want to do that at all. But if you were to just leave the system as it is, well, that's not giving an equality. It's so it's stuffing late, many of the late developers who don't make it, and, and many, many of them just aren't represented in the system. Plus, those early developers are not getting the challenge that they really deserve as well. Now, some people describe the, the current systems, they say, leave it as it is. It's an, an inefficient yet effective system. And I'm sitting there going, what organization in the world wants an inefficient, effective system? That's just a complete joke. You know, imagine you went to Apple and Microsoft and you said, oh, yeah, we're going to turn you into an inefficient, effective system. They would just laugh at you. What you want, particularly when we're looking at eSports and the broader implications and importance of eSport, an effective system and an efficient system and an equal system that gives everybody those opportunities to develop. Yes, cuts will be made at certain points of time, but let's make those cuts in footballing ability, the skill sets, not whether you've won the genetic lottery being early on time or late or born in quarter one, two, three or four. If you're doing that, you're, you're, you're not doing a good job in terms of your work. You want to evaluate the kids on the basis of their true potential going forward and their ability and giving everybody those opportunities. Uh, so, you know, if you look at you look at the nine and 10 year olds in the academies, we don't have maturity biases. At that point of time, at nine and 10, the kids are being selected on their ability. OK, their technical, tactical, psychological skills ability. That's how they're being selected at nine and 10. The, the relative age effects will be there at that point of time. But in terms of maturity biases, we don't have that maturity bias that kicks off at 11 or 12. That's when we've got the problem. And as I said, it's not good for us because we're selecting a whole bunch of kids who just won the genetic lottery being early developers. And we're not challenging them enough. And those late developers just getting squeezed out of the system. And some people say, oh, yeah, late developer eventually comes good. Many of the clubs we see, you don't find a late developer after 14. There's no way a late developer can benefit from this hero's journey or whatever they want to call it. 
because they're not even on the journey. They're not even in the system. So when people argue with me, you know, the likes of, uh, oh, yes, Lionel Messi didn't need biobanding or things like that. I'm sitting there going, well, number one, Lionel Messi played down in age group when he first came to La Masia because they did consider him to be a later developer. Now, clearly, he had a growth retardation. Eventually, he got the treatment and he grew up and he developed. But, yeah, he played up and down as he went through the academy system there. But, uh, you know, the whole idea that you just leave it as it is, I, I don't think that's right. I think you need to make some changes. And it's good that many of the clubs are recognising that. And pushing things forward. It's interesting as well, just as a side note, to note that the organisations that are maybe the most uh, open to this, organisations that maybe previously to that didn't have success, like talking about Manny Johnson at Man United, Man United mm-hmm. weren't the superpower that they are. Yeah. Uh, you know, looking at some of the organisations in Belgium were not a superpower when they started instituting. Oh God, no. You know, and as, as a result, maybe they're open to the ideas of not, oh, well, this is the way we've always done things. You know, it's mm-hmm. not Bill or an Argentina saying, we don't need to do this. We're good as we are. It's teams who are maybe not as successful as you think they should be and are saying, mm-hmm. do something differently. It didn't surprise me that it was Belgium because if you look at Belgium, Belgium is you know, the forefront of study of growth and maturation in Europe. If there's one country that's ahead of the game as it relates to growth and maturity and sport, it's Belgium. Uh, you had Gaston Bunin, who worked very closely with Bob Molina there. Gaston had a number of students who worked in that area and particularly Roll Vions. So Roel Vians held a position with, uh, I believe it was Ghent and uh, his, his local university. And uh, he was embedding a lot of the growth and maturity stuff into their systems there. And it really didn't surprise me that, you know, that was the country that suddenly went, yeah, we're missing a trick here. We're just investing in early developers. And they've done a number of changes. You know, they've got a bunch of smart folk there. There's a guy called Chris van der Hagen, I think his name is, who's done a lot of work in terms of recognizing the futures programs, but also in terms of uh, looking at small-sided games as well, giving people more touches, for example, and working on that and developing skills before moving to full-size games, et cetera. And so they've been incredibly progressive, I think. And uh, nowadays, I would say, you know, England is definitely catching up with them. You know, I wish it was Scotland. Uh, I had to have to have had some conversations with the Scottish clubs as well, but uh, it would be it would be nice to do some more work with them. Uh, Ireland are actually on the ball with this as well just now. Uh, uh, Liam McSweeney's uh, doing the work at uh, Ireland and uh, doing some really nice sort of uh, analyses looking at the existence of their kind of maturity biases there but they've also entered into a futures program there in Ireland as well as have Denmark Sweden Czech Republic uh, a number of the clubs are, are developing them now and you know I think personally the English FA should look at that as well because I think what they're doing is they're selecting early developers largely at the under 16s under 15 level teams and a lot of the clubs are telling me there's much much better players being left at home uh, who should be on a future program and uh, just gives you the opportunity to keep them in and uh, support them and see them for a period of time and develop them. And yeah, if I was England, I'd, I'd be looking very closely at the future program. I think that would be a good idea. And I think the clubs would support it. Well, at least I hope they would. Well, Sean, it's been a pleasure as always to touch base and catch up. And thanks for getting us up to speed on what some of the, the latest research is in this area. It's a really exciting yeah. and I think one that if people aren't using in their practice, if they're with you know within a youth academy or a you know school sports setup, working with gifted and talented athletes, they should be looking at some mm-hmm. maturation calculators that are out there, downloading Jamie Salter's spreadsheet and starting to yep. because um, it's definitely an important area. So thanks for sharing your knowledge and your expertise today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, always happy to chat. Thanks for the opportunity. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram using the account at LTAD Network as well as Twitter at LTAD Network, and find our website, www.ltadnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this episode. And don't forget to get your seven-day free trial to our online platform, as well as 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50.